Well, good morning to everyone as we continue in the gospel of Mark, where we've been since Christmas of last year with a couple little breaks here and there for our Take Heart series and for the story of justice. But we're continuing in Mark's gospel today. I hope each and every one of you are healthy and well in the midst of, again, what 2020 continues to be for us. And for those of you that observed, celebrated Halloween, whatever, whatever word we would use for that, I hope that uh, in some way you're able to find just a little bit of joy uh, this weekend, uh, whether that was uh, kids in costumes or watching your favorite you know, scary movie or something like that, that you were able to have a little bit of just excitement, joy, something fun within the past few years. I know you're months, uh, it feels like years. Uh, I know for us, we, uh, the original plan was we were gonna have uh, Anna uh, for our, our, our daughter, Emma and uh, Olaf, our little you know six month old as a, uh, as a little snowman. And then at the last minute that changed from Anna to Elsa. We didn't have an Elsa costume. And so Emma went as Minnie Mouse and uh, we turned uh, our, our planned Olaf into Baby Yoda in keeping with the release of the second season of The Mandalorian or The Child, excuse me, how dare I. Uh, along with that, uh, we were able to eat um, a lot of really good um, uh, candy and, and get the dad tax on, on all of the candy that, that we had. And we watched, uh, for Emma, it was her first time watching It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie, Brown. And so we sat around the couch and watched that last night as our toddler became a little sugar mutant who uh, I don't think slept last night. We'll find out later. But there's one little thing in uh, The Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, uh, just watching that and reflecting on it was this one little phrase from Linus as he was waiting in the field for the arrival of The Great Pumpkin. He said, there are three things I've learned never to discuss with people, religion, politics, and the great pumpkin. Though the great pumpkin has not come and gone uh, in, in yesterday, Linus's other two off-limit topics are actually the, the, the focus of the teaching today of religion and politics. And I believe this is a, a timely word uh, as we've had a very fearful, scary week, not because of uh, Kevin Changaris's werewolf movie or Brian Ivey's short film, but the political uncertainty of the future of what it means to be an American in this nation and where we're going from here. And so as we arrive at what is quite literally the middle point of Mark's gospel, 16 chapters, here we are right in the middle of chapter eight. We are right at the middle of the story. We find ourselves as not just being, and this gets into whole like really fun Bible nerd stuff, not just at the middle of the story, but quite literally kind of this mountaintop of the story. Everything over these past eight chapters has been building up to what's gonna happen over the next two weeks, today and next Sunday, what we're gonna be looking at. And everything that happens that's revealed to the disciples, everything that Jesus talks about over these next two weeks is what the following all the way leading into Christmas and the Easter of next year is going to be unpacking. We are quite literally at the, it is the, the top of the mountain. This is where everything has built up to and is gonna flow from. We'll talk about that more today. But here at this mountaintop peak, what you're gonna find over uh, today and again, moving into the next year, Mark is gonna begin to aim his, his gospel, his recounting of the story of Jesus in on the political context of his day. See, Mark is writing this gospel from Rome. It's the equivalent of Washington, D.C. within America. He's writing it from the capital. He's writing it to those who are living under Roman rule, the tyrannical Roman rule, which has been through seasons of upheaval and turnover, specifically after the suicide of Caesar Nero and then the claim to power through who is now Caesar Vespasian. 
They're living in all of these turnover, all of this political turmoil, all of these propaganda movements as Vespasian is now coming into power. And so Mark writes his gospel in that context, even our word gospel, good news, euangelion is a political word. For us, it's the idea of something breaking news. The gospel in the Roman context was a, a press release on behalf of the Caesars. It was an announcement of what they had done or what they were doing. Mark is using political language, even in the title of his book. Referring to Jesus as the son of God, not only goes back to the Davidic promises of a king who was to come, but even undergirds Caesar's claims that he was the son of God. Even Jesus's language of being the Christ, the Messiah undercuts Caesar Vespian's claims that he was Israel's Messiah around 70 AD or so. Do you see that the whole gospel, and you're gonna see more of this today, so get ready. Mark is writing from a political context to people in a political context, borrowing and utilizing political language to understand the person and work of Jesus Christ. I've been amazed in reviewing the chapters, planning out where we're gonna go over the rest of the fall and into the spring, how Mark's gospel becomes a sort of anti-Roman propaganda. I mean, Mark understood Jesus as the answer to all the political powers and questions of his day and following Jesus as an entirely new sort of politic, a new sort of citizenship, a new sort of way of structuring yourself. And so as we go into the coming week, as we go into all the questions that you likely have, the fears and concerns, may you sit at the feet of Mark as he retells us the story of Jesus today and to receive from it, maybe a greater sense of allegiance and hope than you could find in whoever is on the ballot this week. The notes as always are there in the chat. You can click and follow along if you'd like. I can't promise I'm gonna stick to them too much. I feel like this is a bit of a, a fire hydrant today. So um, of both emotion and information. So we'll see how today goes. So on that note, let's pray. Father, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that the Bible is not some uh, 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 dropped out of heaven born into a vacuum, but comes to us in the midst of political circumstances and situations similar, but also different than ours. This is not some empty tablet of, of just uh, uh, truisms and idealism, but is birthed in the, the real context of your people in history, reflecting on the work of Jesus Christ and who he is. May we receive it today. Father, would you help provide me through your spirit with clarity? I feel like today, the, just the, 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 the being uh, uh, new within a year to collective of so much of this past year being at a distance, I feel far from the hearts of people today. I just, I, 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 I don't, help me to, to preach a word that's specifically to our hearts and not to God, what my, what my social media feeds have shown me over the past few months. That this would be a sermon, not for my Twitter or my Instagram, but for the, the people here today. God, I pray for our people that you would unite us around the person and work of your son, Jesus, in a moment that seeks to divide us into the idolatries of partisan politics. And God, would your son get all the glory for who he is as we see in this text today. And may we follow him as he calls us to. In your name we pray, amen. I'm a little pumped up today. So let's get into the text. Mark chapter eight, beginning in verse 27. Let's continue as Jesus is in his ministry. And so Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. 
Now, Caesarea Philippi, let's, let's, we already just read barely even a few words and Ryan's already stopping. Yes, because Caesarea Philippi is vital to understanding what Jesus is up to. Caesarea Philippi was a, a network of kind of, it was a big city made up of these villages as Mark notes. It was built by Herod Philip. If you remember Herod Antipas from a few weeks ago, his brother, Herod Philip, Philippi, built this in honor of Caesar. So there it is, Caesarea, Caesar Philippi, built by Philip. It was the headquarters, the HQ of political worship of what's called the Roman imperial cult of its day in in these surrounding regions. You can read of the historian Josephus who talks about the giant palace to Caesar that was set right in the middle of the town. Idols and other little temples to other Caesars, other political rulers, and even to Roma, which is a, a deification of the state of Rome. Roma was a goddess who was the embodiment of everything that Rome was about. You see, in this time and age, there was no separation of church and state, of political ideology and allegiances and worship, hope, sacrifice, adoration. It was all one big thing. The idolization of Caesar, that is the worship, the holding up as the, as the true source of hope and goodness and victory. The idolization of Caesar and Rome, of a politician and a nation came alongside the demonization of these other empires and the other leaders. They idolized Caesar and it allowed them to look down on those around the gates and outside of the walls. And man, if I, as I reflect on Caesarea Philippi, just looking at it into this week of the coins that they minted there that had the image of Caesar in his temple. When I think about the worship of what was happening of, of these Caesars that were demanding the absolute allegiance and worship of their people, all of their hope and dreams and source of the, for, for the future being placed in a political leader. This was not the archaic practice of peoples long ago. That same idolatry, that same worship of power is, is, is doing just well here and now. It's just rebranded within a secular age. We may not make sacrifices. We may not go to a temple, but if you watch the desires of your heart, the way that you think, the way that you talk, the way that you idolize one and demonize the other, the idolatry of partisan politics is alive and well. That America looks far more like Caesarea Philippi than I think we think. We find ourselves believing that we are a part of not just a political conversation about what it means to be this nation and where we're going moving forward, but rather we redeem or or view it in sense of a cosmic battle between good and evil, as opposed to two perspectives of humanity. And so we have conversations about saving the nation or saving democracy or saving Christianity and which person will do what for us when we, this is language of idolatry, when we use language of saving something. So this is the context of Jesus. As they're walking through Caesarea Philippi, they're walking through the headquarters of the whole region of the worship of Caesar and Rome, passing through the city on the way to Mount Hermon, which is where we're gonna be next week. As they walk through, they see all of these idols, people worshiping on their way to make sacrifices, worshiping to these little idols of not just Caesar and Rome, but all of these other gods. They begin to have a conversation, Jesus and his disciples. Let's keep going where it says, and on the way, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others of the disciples said, Elijah. And others of the disciples said, one of the prophets. The disciples rightly summarized the polls at this point in the race. 
They quote exactly from Herod's officials back in chapter six. He is, Jesus is some sort of prophet, some sort of person who comes with power and a word from the Lord. In verse 29, but Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Back in chapter four, we began with that opening question of the disciples seeing Jesus calm the storm and asking, who then is this? Here now in chapter eight, Jesus turns the question back on the disciples. Who do you say that I am? You see, it's not enough to repeat others and what they say about Jesus. Jesus requires a personal declaration from his disciples and from you and me. Who is Jesus to you? Through the miracles, the teachings over the past few chapters, the feeding of the thousands, what answers do the disciples have now? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Peter's answer of referring to Jesus as the Christ, as we've noted this before, Christ is not Jesus's last name. It is a title like doctor or, or pastor or president. It is, a, it is a title of something. To say you are the Christ is to give him a specific honorific, a specific title. And though it appeared at the very beginning in Mark chapter one, where he introduced this as being the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is the first time in all of Mark's gospel that someone in the narrative, in the story has claimed this is who Jesus is. That Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is, as it comes from its Hebrew origin, the anointed one. This figure who is patterned, but anticipated to come in the future, who would be this sort of mix of a prophet, priest, and king all in one, bringing the power and the word of God as a priest, bringing the presence and the holiness of God. And as a king, bringing the righteous rule of God, that this figure was to come and bring all of this. Don't miss, why do we just talk about Caesarea Philippi? Notice this with statues and idols and a temple to Caesar likely right behind him. Peter, you know, big in his britches says, you are the awaited true king of the world, Jesus. The equivalent is if Jesus went on his disciples on a tour through the White House, they go through the library and all the portraits of the presidents throughout history. They drive around Washington, DC, or they go to one of the uh, nominees rallies where everyone is, you know, this person, this person. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? And they remark, you are the president. For Peter, the revolution is at hand. Caesar is on his way out. Herod is on his way out. There is the true king has come and he's here. By declaring Jesus is king, in effect, Peter in this moment is saying, Herod, Caesar, anyone else is not, at least not truly. Now, Jesus is far more as Christ than a political figure. Do not mishear me. But the thing at focus today is that he is not less than a political figure. This is Peter's declaration. This is what he understands him to be. So it's a bit of application right here. In the coming week, whether you have voted or you have yet to vote or by conscience, you will not vote regardless of where you're at. Jesus is the Christ. You may agree with me and say, well, yes, not, not Trump or Biden is the Christ. No, yeah, you may agree with that on, in word. I'm asking you in your heart of hearts, do you truly believe this to be true? And so if Jesus truly is the Christ, then what that means with politicians is we need to drastically lower our expectations. 
No one is gonna save Christianity. No one is necessarily gonna be able to save the world. This superhero language does not belong within the people of God who believe that the true hero of humanity has already come. This conversation about choosing between the lesser of evils, this is we set allegiance to Jesus as King. So when voting, or if you have voted, or if you by conscience again, choose not to vote, Jesus is the Christ. Weigh the options of the privilege of living within a democracy wisely. Do the research, read up, not just on what the ballot says, but what the bills are behind them. Get into it and do all the research as you feel led and to read those in light of your allegiance to Jesus Christ. I'm not simply saying, what would Jesus do? But I'm asking, what would Jesus, what is he calling you to do by your conscience and your wisdom and your leading? Not just with voting, but as results come, what may be Tuesday night or as the prayer, as it may come Tuesday night, or as it may come over the weeks to come and all of the discord that's gonna happen. Whatever the results may be, Jesus is the Christ. If you find yourself with an overt sense of anxiety and terror at the results or an overt sense of pride and victory and hope, who do you say Jesus is? See, politics are important. Caesar is Caesar, the president is the president, huge implications on the way that the world works. And yet the statement being made here of what it means to be a Christian, one who belongs to Christ, is that they are not ultimate. Parties are important, but for those who declare with Peter, you are the Christ, this is a declaration of their primary political party. I've noted this before, but the, our word Christian, what some of you put on your Facebook, or if you're a really cool follower of Jesus, whatever you might have, Christian in its original Greek, where it, it came out of Christianus, meant belonging to Christ, Christ Ianus. That Ianus ending was a political suffix, an ending to a word that shown a political allegiance or political support. So you could have a Caesarianus were the people that supported Caesar. Neroianus were the people who supported the political party of Nero. Christianus was a declaration about political allegiance for the earliest Christians. It continues today. And so belonging to Christ, being a Christian means we can never fully belong to the right or to the left. That in some sense, we as Christians are called to a political homelessness as we find our political home in the person and work of Jesus Christ and who he calls us to be. So you are a Christian first. And I'm not saying that you don't need to register as a Democrat or Republican or whatever it might be, but I am saying before that, superseding that, ultimate over that is your allegiance to Jesus Christ, even over your American citizenship. So I'm getting worked up, but as our nation continues in a politically polarized and a politically idolizing moment, Christian, you need to work. Work for your heart and your mind and your perspective not to be met and melded within the political idolatry of this moment. You need to work for a unity within this body because I promise you that if we were to lay out everybody's ballots that over proposals and over city council and over the the community call, over all of the different things and the bills and then even the president, it would be such a varying degree. But the one thing that would bind all of us together is that what should be true is that we were all working to wisely accomplish the best that we can because of our allegiance to Jesus. And so though we may disagree on those factors, We may even have conversations about them. At the end of the day, we are family. We don't allow something lower than our family connection to divide. 
I mean, Matthew's account, his retelling of this story, when after Peter says this statement, Jesus looks at Peter and, you know, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. And this statement, Peter, what you've just said here, and now because of it, you making this statement, this is the rock that the gates of hell will not prevail against, my church. And so in the midst of this moment, we need to remember that the one promise that we have, the one thing that the gates of hell and the gates of chaos will not overtake in this world is not your political party or your politician or however you lean. It is the the cross, it is the, the, the church of Jesus Christ. And so it's foolishness to build our house on anything else. And so Jesus, though agreeing with them, then says in verse 30, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. You see, Jesus affirms Peter's answer, like we just saw in Matthew's account of the story, but he tells them to tell no one. See, this idea of the Messiah, of the true King of Israel, the Christ, had lots of opinions back then. Big nerds like me like to read really thick books that that weigh through all of the differing uh, opinions and viewpoints within Judaism of who the Messiah was and what he would be, of a priest who would serve with a king, of a priest who was a priest king, or just a priest, and there's no more kingship anymore. There were all these opinions. So the whole question is, Jesus, what are you running on here? Why he tells them, don't talk about me, don't tell anyone that I am the Christ, is people would read into him what they thought his, his running platform would be. What is it, Jesus, to make Israel great again? Is it a holy new deal? Or is it an apocalyptic war like the Essenes thought would come? What does it mean that Jesus is king is the key question that's going to be driving the rest of the gospel of Mark. Like I said, this is the mountaintop. So what does it mean for Jesus to be king? I cannot stress enough, everything is built on the following verses. And Jesus began to teach them, verse 31 that the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again, he said all of this plainly. So Jesus, though we're having a conversation about the Christ, now he refers to himself as the son of man. There is a whole sermon, Ryan, just nerd out moment of all of these titles from out Jewish history coming together in the personal work of Christ and how he uses them interchangeably. But the question is, what's the plan? What is the vision of the Messiah? What's his running platform? With all of the debates from the past few weeks, they were regularly asked, what are you gonna do in your first few days in office? What are your first, and we would get these grandiose claims of what were they gonna do, of what are your first days in office gonna look like? What does Jesus say his first days in office are gonna be like? I'm gonna suffer, I'm gonna be arrested, I'm gonna be tortured. I'm gonna be rejected by my own party, basically is what he's saying and not receiving it from the religious elite and leaders. I'm gonna be killed, him alluding to his crucifixion and I'm gonna rise again, pointing to the resurrection in three days. See, whatever idea you have of power, of victory, of political dominance, of kingship and leadership, Jesus here in the middle of Mark's gospel, it now gets all turned on its head. All of the power that we have seen over the past eight chapters of healings and feedings, of teachings. He's going toe to toe with the scribes and Pharisees. He's casting out legions of demons. He is taking authority to forgive sins and even over the Sabbath. He is going over into the Galilean territory, bringing in the ostracized outsiders of the Gentiles. All of the power that we have seen in Jesus over the past eight chapters now comes to a running start. And at this stall, we have a question about what power actually is. 
Because what we've just said before is not the human perspective of what power looks like. This, this statement splits Mark's gospel right in two. Everything up to this point has been all of the power of Jesus. All the messianic hopes is just coming to fulfillment. Here we go. If this guy can feed, you know, 5,000, 4,000 people, imagine the armies that he could feed. He can walk on water, then their Navy's got nothing on us, right? This is the military victory that's coming. And Jesus here turns the whole thing over and says that the true power of what my kingdom looks like is actually suffering and dying and rejection the very idea of power and glory are radically overturned in the wake of Jesus. Every assumption you have about how power works, how the world works, how we invoke change, all will be turned on its head in the coming eight chapters. The inauguration of the kingdom of God of this Messiah's rule and reign will not be in destroying Rome, but in being destroyed by it. Mark makes it helpful for us. He says that Jesus is speaking plainly here. This ain't no parable, Mark's saying. This isn't no metaphorical dying and being raised. This is no spiritually being raised or he kind of, you know, almost, this is plain speak. He is going to be rejected. He is going to suffer. He is going to die. He is going to be resurrected. What does Peter respond when he hears these words? In verse 32, Peter takes Jesus aside. I love that he like kind of takes him over and puts his arm over him. Listen, buddy, I know we're really excited to have you here with the whole Messiah thing here. You, you, you don't understand how this works, do you, Jesus? This is what some of you are wanting to do right now when you hear this vision of Jesus's kingdom. Jesus, this isn't how power works. This isn't how to invoke change. This isn't how to deal with things like injustice. This isn't how you deal with tyrants, Jesus. This is not what a victorious Messiah looks like. What you've described is actually failure, Jesus. What does Jesus say? 33, Jesus turning and seeing that the disciples were listening in on this conversation, though being rebuked by Peter, now he rebukes him back. And he says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Notice how quickly Peter goes from the guy who sees Jesus as the Christ to immediately being Satan, apparently. It is very, if you don't get this dynamic of Jesus's kingdom down, you are a breath away from missing the whole thing and, and joining the, the Satan, the adversary, the opponent of God. See, Jesus rebukes him, but he, you're, you're rejecting my Messiah mission. You are rejecting the very heart of why I've come to do this. Like Satan back in the desert in my temptation with my 40 days out in the wilderness, you are offering me the kingdom through power, prestige, and praise rather than trusting God in the long way of suffering. Peter, you're thinking like a human, like a human who's been shaped by Satan himself. And my whole mission has its origin, not in humanity, but in God and his kingdom. Everything is being turned on its head here in these chapters. Verse 34. So Jesus likely thinking that maybe what Peter is thinking is existing within the rest of the disciples and actually this crowd that's beginning to gather around. Verse 34, Jesus calls the crowd over to him. Come here. He said to them, listen, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus sees all these people and okay, the Messiah, he's the Christ, this vision is coming and he calls everybody and he goes, anybody wanna come after me? Anybody wanna follow me? 
And everybody says, yeah, because this is the Christ. This is the Messiah in their vision. What's coming is it's a messianic battleground, the apocalyptic. We're gonna storm the, the temple of Caesar Augustus right now. And we're gonna purify it and claim the land back for the Lord. Or anybody wanna follow me in my royal victory parade? Anybody wanna sit at my right and left hand in my glory when my, my kingdom comes? Everybody says, yes, we wanna follow you, Jesus. This is what we've been waiting for, political power like we've always imagined. And Jesus says what? Let them deny themselves. You see, with the momentum building up here, what you would imagine in the midst of all of this is that what Jesus would say is deny Caesar, Right? In all of the context leading up to this, we're in Caesarea Philippi, we're around all these temples, we're dealing with who truly is the king of the world. You would think that Jesus would say, deny Caesar, follow me. But who do we deny? It's you and me. It's kind of this wink and nod that the real Caesar was you all along in the twist of the movie. The true power hungry, hypocritical, oppressive power out there that continues to move and form reality in favor of itself and promotes itself as king against God and his kingdom is you and me. And see, every, every Caesar, every politician, every president, every time power goes wrong, it's not anything necessarily special about them. They are just a human like you and me with more opportunity to give leash to the same inclinations within your heart and mine. All of us have a heart which promotes itself as king against God. And so Jesus says, in order for my political movement to begin, my kingdom to come, my, the father's will to be done, then yeah, deny Caesar. But even more than that, deny the Caesar within your own heart. Deny the political claim to power that your heart constantly makes. Deny any and all political allegiances which demand your full allegiance. Deny my grandiosity, deny my control over my life, my self-creation, my safety, my resume, my pleasure, my desires, my honor, my self-actualization. Jesus's call here is heresy within 2020 in our century. When the end goal of humanity is to find yourself and be yourself and actualize yourself, every single Disney movie to show yourself Jesus's claim here is deny yourself. Deny any and all allegiances which claim all of you. In this moment to deny ourselves means that oftentimes we may be claimed as being a rhino if we lean to the right, a Republican in name only because we refuse to toe the party line on all things. Or we might feel again, the political homelessness when we hear Sanders say things like there's no such thing as a pro-life Democrat. By denying ourselves, it means that we deny any avenue of political connections, which would take all of us. And we continue to do something alongside that. Jesus says what? To take up their cross. Now, again, the Messiah motif, the king here, the, 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 the revolution is at hand, is here. Other messiahs, other would-be messiahs throughout history, what did they call for their followers to do, right? If anyone wants to follow me, Deny Caesar and take up your sword is what we would imagine here. Literally in the Maccabean revolt, just a couple of generations before Jesus, quite literally Judah Maccabee, a Messiah figure heard, take this sword. And so Jesus in saying, take up their, your cross is doing two things simultaneously. One, he is saying my Messiah movement, my revolution that's at hand is one of nonviolence first and foremost. 
Secondarily, more than just nonviolence, by being a cross, he doesn't just say, don't take up your sword. He takes up the tool is a cross. It is not just nonviolence, but shame. It is a tool of state sanctioned execution. It is torture. It is rejection. It is shame. It is death. James H. Cone would compare the closest an, an, an analogy that we have to what the cross was in its day was the lynching tree in the South within the American story. You see, we don't, we don't like this kind of talk that this is what it means to follow Jesus in his way. So we spiritualize bearing our cross and every little thing that gets in the way every little thing that just kind of is a hiccup within me living within my American dream is my cross to bear. It even comes up in the language, the way that we talk about it, where uh, there was one commentator that alluded to uh, Angelinos having to bear a 32 year cross in the absence of World Series, that cross that has now been lifted, praise be to him. The, The reality is, that when we, we live within a Western culture, we, we, we have so much privilege that we, we don't know what to do with Jesus's call to take up your cross. When for Mark's audience and for most Christians throughout history, this was literal, not figurative. So it's not only that Jesus is gonna go the way of death, anyone who would want to follow him to be his disciple must as well. And so with living within the safety of Western culture, which we're so grateful for, at the very least, Cross-bearing means nothing less than giving one's whole life in allegiance to Jesus, even unto death. So deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus repeats himself. Anyone wanna follow me? You gotta follow me. You're gonna have to actually follow me. My way of living, my suffering, rejection, this whole path, you're gonna follow me, you're gonna have to follow me. You're gonna have to receive my vision for human flourishing, my vision, my concern for the poor and vulnerable, my desire for reconciling the nations, my desire for justice and righteousness to flow, my desire for forgiveness and healing, my desire for the feeding of the hungry, for the clothing of the naked. My, if you're gonna follow me, you have to actually follow me. All of these together come in stark contrast of how we do political support here versus what Jesus is calling us to. If you were really invested in one of the candidates this year and you really gave your political support, it would not just be a, a vote, but also you know, social media posting, even canvassing back when we were allowed to actually like walk outside of our houses and talk to people. You would call, you would, you would, there, were, there were these ways of how you would support your politician. Jesus says, yeah, no, no vote, no posting, no canvassing, no calling. I want you, you're gonna support me. If you're gonna be a part of my party, you're gonna be a part of my vision, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. The surprises continue in verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Forever who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man or woman to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul or, or their life? For what can a person give in return for their life, for their soul? You see, here the surprises continue that though what we've just been set before us is is nothing but death and shame and rejection, it twists here that actually what appears to be the way of death is in fact the way of life. If you clutch after your life, if you fight for power, you will actually lose your life and lose all the power in the process. If you chase power, 
you'll, you'll never have enough. If however you render allegiance to Jesus, the King, if you give faith to him and his gospel, even unto the death of you physically or the death of all of your, your silly desires in your own kingdom building, then you actually will possess it wholly. You can email me if you think that I'm wrong here, but I'm gonna say it. The, the reality is, is that what we have seen within the American story right now is that this pretends to pull the political moment is we have seen the forfeiting of life from two different perspectives. On one hand, you have this evangelicalism vision within this kind of Christian right movement that has sought to gain the whole world and in the process in many ways has forfeited its gospel witness, its life by seeking to do this sort of syncretism, this idolatry of merging America and the Christian right with the vision and mission of the kingdom of God. On the same side, and if I can be honest, just as silly and dangerous is the progressive Christianity's movement to just compartmentalize the faith altogether. Or even worse, to set a political system in just as much over, which is not as, as, as uh, vivid as syncretism where we're using Jesus' language. We just let Jesus sit in the back seat and we don't let him speak into issues of politics anymore. What profit will you have, Jesus says, if you corrupt the gospel and divide your soul between the kings? None. He continues, heavy week. <laughs> Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. So you see, there's no both and here. There's no, it, it is allegiance to Christ or being ashamed of Christ. And in doing so one day being ashamed by Christ. And he contrasts that the main key issue of this feeling ashamed of Christ comes down to doing two things, either adulterous or sinful. Adulterous, a word for, for fickle, of, of just having all of these, you, you just throw your allegiances all over the place. And so Jesus doesn't get all, he gets a little bit. You give him some of your like spiritual allegiance, but then ethical or social or political or your, your money or your time or your sexuality, that it's all divided among the differing little gods and kings that you set before you. This is what it means to be adulterous, to be fickle. Like I said a moment ago, this is, this is what I see within, within progressive Christianity is a fickle faith. We've got allegiance to Jesus, but he's only allowed to speak over and on these issues. And we only let him speak when he agrees with us on these issues. At the same time, Jesus also contrasts the sinful or the faithless generation. Again, within, within much of, of modern evangelicalism, within the Christian right, within this moment, is this outright faithlessness, a sinfulness and idolatry which like the Israelites that married Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God that Jesus reveals with the gods of Assyria or Baal or Asherah, it is the same exact thing where we talk about God and Trump within the same two conversations. You see, you chase power, you'll find yourselves doing things to continue within that direction. You wanna chase cultural belonging, situational and, and, and circumstantial belonging within a people group, within your party. You, I, I've, just, I've watched since 2016 on both the left and the right, Christian leaders and, and Christians themselves who continue to forfeit themselves in the name of adultery and their sinfulness in the midst of this generation because they're ashamed of Jesus. You'll end up saying things you never imagined, forfeiting principles that you once held dear and you'll lose yourself and you'll lose Christ in the process. And in fact, you'll trample on the witness of Jesus Christ within our culture. 
And so Jesus then turns this in the beginning of verse one of, of chapter nine. And so he said to them, after setting this hard word before each and every one of them, like I'm, I didn't pull any punches because you know, you're just reading words on a page. Jesus isn't pulling the punches here. Jesus looks at his disciples and his followers in the eyes. Truly, I tell you, some of you standing here with me right now, you guys are not gonna taste death until the kingdom has come in its power. Why is this such good news after everything that he's just said? My kingdom and my, the power that, you, that, that, that everybody is fighting for is actually not something that you can attain to. And it's not pie in the sky when you go to heaven power. It's here. And by saying some of you are not even gonna taste death, this has led Bible nerds to argue over what Jesus is alluding to for the past 2000 years. Some would say it's the transfiguration in the following chapter. I tend to, to, to lean that way. Others would say that the arrival of the kingdom and its power is gonna be in his cross or his resurrection or his ascension to the right hand of the father or in his Pentecost uh, when he sends the spirit into his church or all of them. I love the guys. It's, it's all, of, all of these things. But regardless, for us reading this back 2000 years removed now, regardless of when it happened, it has happened. The good news in the midst of all of this hard word is that the kingdom and all of its power is inaugurated. It is at hand. It is here. It has come. The power that you desire, the power to see the world change, to move without fear, and to be able to have a position where you have some certainty and cling to something that is immovable and grounded and doesn't get shaken up every single four years, that kingdom has come in its power. It is here, not actualized, but inaugurated already, but not yet. And so the good news in the midst of this hard word is the thing that you're looking for, that it is not dependent on what happens on Tuesday. The savior of the world will not arrive on Air Force One. You see, the kingdom of God, the church, as the, as the revelation of it has been running through history and it cannot be shaken, has not been shaken every single four years. Again, as Jesus said to Peter, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. So come Wednesday morning or however long the debates and, and, and the, the ravaging goes back and forth, debating over ballots coming in, whatever may come every single day, tomorrow morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Thursday morning, in an nauseum into eternity, I'm going to wake up and Jesus is still gonna be Lord. We're gonna continue being the people of God and nobody gets a vote on that. This is what it means to belong to Jesus. It does not mean that we just say no to politics. We don't get involved and we just live within our privilege where we don't have to have a vote because nothing really, we get involved and yet we refuse to base our hope and our allegiance and our worship on some human being because it's a delusion. I'm getting angry now. In a moment that is obsessed with who has power, Jesus here in uh, verse one of chapter nine invites you to see that power is not something that you grab after. It's something that's already come to you in the kingdom of God, in the revelation of Jesus as the son of God, as the Messiah of God, as the son of man. And so this is why it's a delusion, the soul-costing syncretism of evangelicalism and the fickle compartmentalism of progressive Christianity both miss the dynamic portrait that's coming together in this passage. The moment that you see power as something to be grasped, something to claim, you lose yourself in the process. You become the drive for power. You become like Revelation and Daniel and all throughout the prophets, you become like a beast. 
Every single empire is the story of humans chasing after power and it never satisfying. But for those who deny themselves, those who take up their cross, those who follow the way of King Jesus, the way of laying down your privilege and your power, even though it may bring cultural shame, exclusion, even death. These are those individuals who actually find power, not as something to be grasped, but something that's already been gained by their King. And so to go all the way back to the beginning of the gospel, we find that this is what Jesus has been talking about the whole time. Mark chapter one, verse 15, Jesus goes in and around Galilee, proclaiming the gospel. Remember the political announcement from the King. And he said that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is now at hand. So repent, turn from your way of thinking, your way of being, your way of your political partisanship, your way of seeing the way that this world works for the kingdom is at hand, it's here. And it's been revealed in a king who looks so drastically different than anything else in this world. As we end, Philippians chapter two, beginning in verse five, where the apostle Paul reflects on all of this. As he writes, as a prisoner of the Roman state, he writes this from prison, being arrested from Rome. He writes, so then church, have this mind among yourselves, this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, power, not a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. It's the word for slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of this sort of self-sacrificial, self-giving love, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That is the name of God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the creator God is now somehow on the father in God with Jesus involved within this divine identity so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. This is political. This is, not, this is just as political as it is religious. Every knee bow to the true king in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar. To the glory of God, the father. Do you see what I mean? What I've been saying since you guys hired me, the political dimensions of Jesus's ministry must be upheld in order to make it through these moments where political idolatry and demonization continue to run rampant. It is the sole place of having this sort of mind and humility of not being diluted by the control of power but seeing the way of Jesus is actually in relinquishing power and in finding that at the very bottom of it all is the place where God's power is most seen. Let's pray.